Welcome to the Stockman Grass Farmer Podcast, where our mission is to help create a healthy planet and people through profitable grass-based livestock production. Grass farming is a 24-7 job and you can't always get away, so we've put together this podcast so that you can listen while you work or whatever you're doing, but always on your schedule, whenever and wherever you want. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links to freebies and special offers. Join our email family and stay up to date on our happenings and like us on social media. This is part two from Abram Bowerman's talk, Sheep, Corner the Prophet at Stockman Grass Farmers 2022 Gathering at Polyface. Forage availability and labor are the biggest challenges limiting full-time shepherds. Abram shares how he overcame these obstacles to become a self-financed grazier by the age of 25. He grazes multi-species with sheep as the centerpiece. Be sure to check out the show notes to learn more. Thanks for listening. Kind of building off of his, in your ideal situation where you had to do a leader follower, what would be your ratio and which one would you run first? So the question is, if you have to do leader follower, what's the ideal ratio and which one would you send through first? Uh, it depends. It, <laughs> What's your centerpiece? Are you raising a majority of sheep or are you raising a majority of cows? I would always send the smallest group through first regardless of species. Uh, because the, the larger group to get the animal impact you need won't leave sufficient behind for the smaller group. So our, our second biggest challenge was labor, and obviously we had overcome this by now. I, I couldn't have been taking care of 300 cows, 400 ewes, uh, if I was treating these sheep like I was in my teens. And it, it just, I wrote an article last fall, a lot of you probably remember it, uh, Sheep as Employees. And so I'm going to base this part of my talk kind of on the same thing. The sheep are our employees. I do fire them. Um, <laughs> some things like that. So just so there's no confusion on what I'm saying here. So I, I want to start this with a, a true story that Stan Parsons tells. Uh, there was a New Zealander who was visiting a U.S. sheep ranch, and he was shocked speechless when he found out that the owner said he needed an employee to help take care of the 300 head he had. And the... The American was obviously irritated. He turned on the New Zealander and he said, he demanded, well, how many do you lamb out? And the New Zealander said, just over 3,000. He said, how much help? Well, just three dogs and me motorbike. Wow, how do you manage? Well, I've got a part-time job in winter to help make ends meet. It's all a question of attitude and structure of the business. This industry is almost no more labor intensive than we choose to make it. We can put a lot of work in here, or we can kind of uh, sit back and let the, the sheep do the $8 an hour stuff. One way to control labor costs is to scale. Uh, that was um, impressed on me pretty profoundly when we went from about uh, 30 ewes originally to Within a couple of years' time, we ramped it up to 400. Uh, my wife, Christina, and I were building our team, 
so you know we will have potential to crank out a lot more in the long run but it occurred to me that we've got four children now ages one to almost seven it occurred to me that sheep just that children do not scale as well as as sheep and cows <laughs> On a more serious note, the simple answer to the labor dilemma was simply to hire sheep to raise lambs for us. I have three to four hundred employees working for me, depending on the year. We adjust those numbers according to uh, how many of them I can compensate. Uh, we, we're not going to let anyone go away hungry if we're running out of sheep forage, for, sheep friendly forages. We cut numbers back, and we ideally do that before we start losing a lot of animals. Uh, hiring your sheep or any stock to work for you is just the best way to solve a labor issue you possibly could. They don't sue, they don't go on strike, they know what needs to be done and are prompt to do it. They're always on time, they work for minimum wage. My ewes birth all the lambs, they mother up on their own most of the time. They get, cold, they get fired if they don't. Uh, they manage the parasite load, they shed their own coats in spring uh, you would think there was nothing left for me to do, but there is, absolutely. I manage when and where and for how long they graze. They, everyone needs a, a leader, right? Uh, the bigger the crowd, the more important to have a, a, a CEO that's kind of guiding what's going on. Um, I choose which you lambs get to work for me. I fire employees who aren't productive. I manage breeding and birthing season to for optimal reproduction and survival. It's not a free-for-all. Just because you're born on the farm doesn't mean you get to stay on the farm and keep working for the farm. You have to be productive there and pull your share of the load. I've got time to think, plan, and, and observe because the user are doing the $8 an hour stuff. Uh, I'd be chasing my tail in circles if I was trying to micromanage all the little biological functions. Uh, I don't think this is new to any of y'all. It's, it's kind of a, a common concept in uh, the Stockman grass farmer, but uh, I do try to provide good working conditions for my employees. That uh, means uh, and adequate compensation, like good forage diversity. They don't do well on grass only. The, and I experienced this myself recently. Uh, I thought I had overcome the, the limiting factor in the operation and we, we now had what I needed to go forward and, and kick cows out of it, regardless of what was growing on the landscape. It didn't work. Nature did the calling that I should have done a couple of months quicker. Um, sheep require a higher plant of nutrition in cattle. They, they have twice the production capability of cattle. They'll, they'll birth twins and they will generally reproduce a year sooner than cattle. And this level of production must be supported by a corresponding level of nutrition. That's uh, best accomplished through um, broadleaf weeds, forbs. We'll get into that some more later. The other Really, the key aspects of uh, happy employees is clean water. 
uh, if we're giving them something that we wouldn't want to drink, we're asking their, their system and everything around them to filter out a lot of trash. And if that's going on, there's no, there's no uh, growth happening. They're not, they're not going to perform when they're spending all their time filtering out pollutants. Uh, they, if they need shade, give it to them. Uh, don't, don't think that you can cheat them a little and they will adapt over time. It, it, you, you might weed some out and they may be a little more heat tolerant, but there's other reasons than just uh, heat intolerance to give shade. If they're left out in the sunlight too much, you, 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 ex you could experience symptoms similar to sunburn. The ears can start to peel in a, uh, extreme cases. They become photosensitive and the head and ears will swell up to the point you can't even see their eyes. Uh, they're getting too much vitamin D. So our white sheep actually will go into the shade faster than our black sheep. And I think that's because the pigmentation and the skin on those black sheep is blocking out the sunlight. So they, they can balance their vitamin D levels. They're hanging out in the sun more so they can absorb more sunlight. They, they can't spend as many hours in the shade. And, and I uh, can't tell that the performance is significantly lower on those black hues. Is there any questions on our uh, labor approach before we move on with this? So just for the kicks, I wrote out a list of ground rules for getting started. I'm, I'll read them off here. Have a plan. Don't chase your tail. Identify your centerpiece. Make it first priority in labor and investment. Grow a business with profits. Throwing money at your business will allow you to make more mistakes. Don't kill something that wants to live and don't try to keep something alive that wants to die. <laughs> if you have forage, you can raise livestock, but maybe not the species you would prefer. Match the grazing species to your available forage species. Passion for your work is not luxury, it's an imperative. Death loss happens, don't let it get you down. Do you want to become a wealthy shepherd? Spend less than you make. <laughs> I'll leave it here, you can come copy it later. So what makes a sheep's clock tick? Uh, obviously forage diversity, we brushed over that just a little bit. Um, 50 species in the diet would probably, or an option to eat 50 species every day would be ideal during uh, the highest production era, which would be uh, lactation and growth. And they need to be green and growing, if at all possible. It's weedy hay doesn't make good hay. Weeds don't cure as well as grass. I've, I've never seen them eat weedy hay as well as they'll eat standing forbs. So it's, it's just kind of obvious here that the lambing season should coincide for the 
greatest nutrient demand to line up with the greatest nutrient availability. That, in my area, begins, we should begin lambing in my area about the 10th day of May. Uh, if you're in a more of a tropical climate, you may be wanting, if I'm thinking about this right, you'd want to lamb the beginning of winter because you've got a rainy season and you get this green flush. So it's going to depend on your environment. I think as a rule, just kind of look at when the deer are fawning. Uh, you don't see very many fawns in February in, in this part of the country. Uh, so forage diversity. Like I said, we had tried to cut the cow out of it when I went back to running only my own stock. And I'd tried this earlier, uh, quite a few years earlier and it, it has never worked. I've never seen a farm that has worked on to get sheep to eat every herb of the field and whatever that herb, quantity that herb may appear. And this is especially true in the case of Kentucky 31. Sheep don't like it unless it's been frosted and then they eat it when they have ate all the other grasses out. So when we eliminate the cow and her heavy hooves, we lose the disturbance we need to maintain a certain amount of uh, early secession plant life. And the result is that the species on the landscape now quickly becomes overstocked and you start to have a die-off to match it back to uh, how much sheep-friendly forages are actually out there. And in my experience on a, a fairly fertile field, like what we see out behind here, that can happen in as little as two to three years. They'll select all the forbs out of it. They trample the fescue. Fescue doesn't mine lodging. It just puts another layer of leaves on and pretty soon all that's left is a bunch of fescue. So God's designed creation to always shift towards a late secession landscape. That means grass or trees, depending on uh, whether there's something to keep those trees from coming. Sheep do best in an early secession landscape. That is essentially forbs and annual grasses. So if you really want to make sheep the centerpiece of the operation, and you don't want to have any significant number of cattle on the farm, you're going to have to figure out some way to mess things up and open the land up, which really may not be, you know, the healthiest for the land, but it will be healthy for the bottom line if we've, our context has already ruled out cattle because your sheep must have that stuff. So, so we're trying to maintain the landscape in an early state of secession, right? No, I'm not, but if, if you want to, here's the tools to do it fire, herbicide, tillage, and back to where we are again, heavy animal impact. Uh, we've come full circle and I'm, I'm back to having cows out on the land again. We, we can't dispense with them. I don't want to be out there disking all the time. I don't want to be uh, using herbicide. And if I'm using fire, I have to have enough of a thatch to get it to burn and that's a lot of cow feed 
So the problem solved. Bring the cows back in, graze that thatch off. Next spring, you've got more sheep feed again. So the, the question is what the land looks like, the landscape would look like after we've prepared it with cows to raise forage for the sheep. Uh, again, it's going to depend on what you're wanting to do and for how long the cattle are going to be in the system. If the cattle are going to be on there year round, I just usually assume that there's going to be enough forbs out there somewhere to feed the sheep flock and don't I, I try to do the best I can not to scar the land up too much because you always get some areas that will get roughed up pretty bad uh, when it's wet and early spring uh, this, this past summer we were custom grazing and the intent was to move the cows out uh, by now and and run no cattle over winter. So we wanted to get a little harder on the landscape, right? Uh, in other words, take it, take it down at least flat, whether or not they've ate it all the way down, once in a growing season. Okay, so we're gonna move forward with uh, supporting this level of production and the sheep, uh, like I said, they, they are trying to produce twice as much as cows. We have to compensate them uh, for their, their efforts there. That is best done with uh, early secession plants, forbs, and annuals. Now, I've, I could stand corrected here, but I believe that's because the, the forbs are much more nutrient-dense than grass. So let's say a sheep eats 4% of her body weight and a cow eating 25 to 3%. Uh, she's not quite doubling consumption, what she eats needs to be a little richer. Uh, Forbs are 33 to 45% more nutrient dense than grasses typically are growing in the same soil. Uh, I think the reason annual grasses are so liked by the sheep is because they are more digestible at least than uh, fescue anyway. And so they pass through the rumen faster and allow them to eat more. Stockpiled grass is a great winter feed if the ewes are not lactating. Uh, that's a question that has come to me frequently. Can we, we lamb in the winter and, and they uh, raise these lambs on stockpile? And I've never been very successful at it and I haven't, I don't know of anyone that has, but the the, the question continues to come, so I'm going to repeat this. You can winter sheep on stockpile if the ewes are not lactating. <laughs> so on uh, uh, these forbs, you know, the, the nutritional values in them, um, all my best years in sheep have always been coupled with a wide range of of uh, diversity out there. We've had a lot of different forbs. In the, the years we had less, uh, they, might, they might do okay, and then we have to uh, make up for it in the finishing phase somehow or else sell light lambs. And, and trying to reduce what 
what the the variable was that uh, we kept coming up with a different result each year it, it become clear that there wasn't any one thing we could knock out but there was one commonality and that was we always had to forge diversity uh, there's we've tried a lot of different mineral programs uh, tried to always give them a fair run a minimum of four months most two years or more and we've never had uh, any serious success with any of them if the forge wasn't what it should have been. If it was, then was it the mineral that was doing it or is it just the forge? Because like I said, we've always had good years when the forge is diverse and we've never had a good year when we have very little diversity. So each species a weed has its own mineral profile. Nettles high in phosphorus, wild garlic and onions are high in sulfur, chicory is high in copper, heath aster is high in selenium, legumes are high in calcium. I did a little brainstorming. I'm like, I wonder how many weeds we actually have out here. I was hoping, counting uh, woody species, I might be able to come up with a hundred on the land I uh, own and rent. And so I just sat down at my desk and I started counting the ones I remember seeing within the past year at some point in the year and writing them down as I went under, uh, under their, whatever letter they started with, if it's chicory, I put it under a C so it's easy to reference and see whether you have it on the list yet. And in my area, I, I came up with 117 species counting grasses that I have a name for and then I decided to go out and see if I could find any more and walking through uh, woods and wetland which tend to be uh, naturally diverse I came up easily with 30 more that I couldn't name and I think there's there's probably more than that but if you can't name it it's kind of hard to say absolutely that you're not recounting so I, I'm gonna leave it at the 30 there um, I would understand there's 90 minerals and trace minerals roughly uh, in the world and if each forb has its own mineral profile or component and each one is high in this or that or that or a combination and we have access to more than a hundred species then we've got a free choice mineral program going for us the catch here is that I don't have 117 species on every acre. I don't have 117 species in every paddock. So my limiting factor in running a lot of sheep and always having them healthy is going to be developing more diversity, more of those species on every acre. Yeah. So the, the question is identifying all these different species. How, how did I do that? Uh, is there a book? Uh, I'm sure there is. I didn't learn it out of one. Um, I have followed the Missouri Conservation Department some and identified some of them through there. Uh, mostly I just picked it up from mentors. Uh, sometimes the evidence will conflict. One will call it horse nettle and the next one will call it bull thistle. So 
you're never really sure what you're dealing with uh, always until you, you, you reference it uh, somewhere a little more, um, what's, what's the term, official. And so I guess I've, I've just, I'm a forged nut and I've been, I've been uh, collecting uh, names, trying to recognize plants ever since I was quite young. And to me, the, the disturbing thing is that there's still 30 to 50 species in my environment that I can't name. <laughs> yeah. So my, the question is, is my daddy proud of me yet? Uh, I guess I would say yes. Uh, in fact, I really think uh, my success getting to write for SGF has been a lot of that, and also the people that come by that doesn't go unnoticed. Uh, however, he still likes raising corn silage. He still likes making and feeding hay. Um, he's still my daddy. Uh, that's that's okay. We 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 try not to bring uh, too much of the production thing into uh, the family <laughs> relationships. Uh, so I'm a little bit of a black sheep there. None of my brothers see quite eye to eye with me on. Well, they might be putting it mildly on. on uh, <laughs> but on the other hand. All of them are working in some field other than livestock, and all of them wish they were in livestock. Yeah. How much have we improved them? So the question is, on the land I own, how much has our carrying capacity increased? Um, that would be best answered on my home farm. Uh, it's been under my management. Well, I started grazing my dad's cows when it was previously in hay, and gaining gaining our, uh, a better relationship there and a little more uh, decision-making authority, I had started to rotate the cows into some hay ground uh, uh, on my dad's place, and so. I grazed that farm one year before I ended up buying it. That would have been 2012, so right at 10 years on it. Um, I think our carrying capacity on that place, I, I'm safe to say we've, we've increased about 60% uh, over what we had. I, uh, that's a conservative number because I try to stock for drought uh, this year if we really wanted to uh, exploit what we could grow uh, and had the had infinite stocking ability that farm would have cranked out easily a hundred percent more than it did in the past and I think maybe a hundred and fifty percent the growing season ain't over we're we're just hoping it's going to keep raining <laughs> yeah Uh, I don't have the, okay, so the, the, the question is the, the, how did I learn the mineral profile on all these forbs? Uh, is there a resource for that? I, I hope. I'm, I'm looking for it. 
I don't have a I don't have a mineral profile on very many of them. Uh, I learned a lot of this from human health uh, when I ran out of answers elsewhere and I was trying to throw natural answers at the sheep and couldn't find it and I uh, went to human health but in the end I found that weeds which are forbs which are herbs uh, really have a lot of answers and I don't need to be that smart if I just know how to propagate them. So as far as the, the, the ones that I did name there and what they're high in, that's taken from human health books. Uh, they're using herbal remedies, uh, teas, and so on. Question here. Yeah. So what are you fencing sheep with so they're not just free-ranging everywhere? So the, the question is, what, what are we using for fencing control? Um, primarily two strands of poly wire and O'Brien tread-in posts. I uh, use a geared reel just to, again, reduce labor. Um, perimeter, or, yeah, perimeter fences and semi-permanent brake fences are three-strand high tensile. Uh, the third strand is for cattle. I frequently will move the cows up against my two-strand sheep fence and I haven't had a breakout yet even though it's only like 16 inches tall uh, it, it may be coming I don't do it if there's a cornfield nearby or something like that uh, the, the, the key on keeping sheep in is strictly training and consistency keep that fence hot at all times uh, it's it's best to I would rather get out there and weed eat than watch my fence hovering down there around two and a half, three kilovolts. Uh, if it's running five or six when it's dry, it won't usually go below four at night. And I haven't had actually had a flock break out uh, in at least 10 years. I can't say that when I first started. We, we weren't consistent on keeping the fence hot. Um, and I, the, the, the biggest problem I really had early on was I had a couple of ewes in there that knew how to navigate a fence. And once they're out, they all get out. And the best decision I ever made was to eliminate those ewes. Uh, and honestly, after doing that, we just, we've never had any problem as long as I'm consistent about keeping our, our fences hot and keeping them visible. Yeah, so the, the question is what we uh, do for guardians. Uh, obviously, if you're in a predator-rich country, uh, that's, that becomes a problem over time. I uh, didn't have any protection from 2003 when I bought my first sheep all the way to uh, 2000, 2012. And uh, Greg Judy come by one day. He said, how in the world are you keeping the coyotes out of here? And I said, I don't know. They've just never been a problem. Well, I started getting nervous. We tried a donkey and... Uh, got unhappy with that so we got rid of him and and tried a llama and uh 
before we even worked him into the main flock, decided it wasn't going to work. So I ended up buying a dog off of Grit. Well, I, I bought a Pyrenees first, and he he liked to eat lamb, and he he didn't really. <laughs> He, he really wasn't out there for anyone but himself. There was, there, there was no emotional attachment to those sheep whatsoever. Uh, if they got in his way or got near his dog food, he would uh, just tear into them. And, and if he was bored, he would chase them for the fun of it. And so he didn't last long either. Them kind of dogs make good pets. That's where they belong. Uh, so I met Greg and I, I went down there and I looked at what he was doing and I said, you know, I, I, there's something a little different about these dogs. I can't quite lay a finger on it, but I, I think these dogs will work. So I bought a dog off of him and, and uh, brought him home and released him with the sheep in 2013. And in 2014, I had a brother-in-law that had a flock in the area and coyotes finally developed a taste for lamb and they took out a good many of his animals in uh, a few days time so they started nighttime pinning them and the coyotes moved to one of my brother's flocks neither one of these are still shepherds if you're going to stay a shepherd uh, be prepared ahead of time with a uh, plan to protect them you may get by for 10 years or so like i did but I think the reason it, it was working was because I always I had a small flock and we always lambed them up around the buildings. I mean, within a stone throw of the buildings. And by the time they would start to head out across this 300-acre farm, there was young rabbits everywhere and uh, young mice, and the coyotes weren't hungry. There was too much easy feed, and, they, and since they hadn't developed a taste for sheep, or any inkling of how much fun it could be to just pull them down, they never bothered them. But today, there has been other flocks that have shifted through the area, and a dog's the last thing on everyone's mind, and everyone goes through that learning experience of, uh, I need a dog, or I have to have a donkey, and the sheep can find close to the donkey. And so the coyotes are well-trained to pick off any flock that doesn't have a dog in it. I had bought uh, two Merimas. I, I got tired of buying dogs. I'm like, I want to start raising my own and we're going to develop our own line here. And I had a Pyrenees with a flock that was being reasonably successful and I had these Merimas over here with another flock. And I want to reverse this, so I did. And the Merimas like, no, we're bonded to this flock and we're going to return to them. So I end up with three dogs back over here and none over here. And if I know when they got out, within four hours, coyotes came in and pulled down two lambs. And that flock had never been preyed on uh, from its inception. So th those coyotes were watching. They were keenly aware of whether the, the flock had dogs in there. And today, a dog that is dependable and stays with the flock makes all the difference of whether I can raise sheep in my area. You, you, you could get by without it for a while, but do go ahead and have you a plan uh, if, if something happens. Nighttime pinning uh, may well work. I think Electronet has, will deter a lot of uh, predation, uh, but like in my case, I'm only running 
two poly wires and they're only that the top wire that far off the ground and and a coyote can easily jump it so uh, a dog is a must So the, the question is whether I prefer Merrimas over uh, Pyrenees, absolutely. Uh, I've, I've never seen a bad one. I would argue that the bad ones I have heard about uh, were a result of the way they were handled and not so much the, the way they were bred. I have started to incorporate a little bit of Anatolian in there just because I wanted to broaden the gene pool out just a little bit. They were starting to get kind of inbred. And again, not every Anatolian will work. Uh, the ones the ones that are working for me are definitely working for me, and so they, they're getting to pass their genetics along. Uh, that dog I got from Greg, I believe he was between a quarter and half Pyrenees. And he, he worked out really well as the best investment I ever made uh, in the flock. So it's not so much breed, it's more how they perform. When you go buy a dog, uh, kind of watch, are they having to fence them real tight to keep them with their sheep? If they're roaming, they haven't bonded to those animals. Uh, that bonding is proof that they won't eat them. Uh, I, I've tried feeding ground mutton to my dogs and they wouldn't touch it. I put some ground pork out there and they wolf it down. I have seen a few dogs that are an exception to that rule. They, they won't eat the sheep, but they would eat a dead sheep. And I, I don't really like that. It's uh, just a, one step too close. Yeah. Um, you say you basically If I can identify them, they don't have another chance. Uh, the, the, the question was, if a sheep gets out, how soon should she be eliminated? Uh, once, once I realized the importance of that, like if I buy a flock of sheep today and I see one jump over the fence and I know she's had adequate training, she never goes back in the flock. Uh, the, the question is whether we eat them or whether we sell them. It depends on uh, how much room we got in the freezer. Uh, <laughs> and on what I think I can get for her. Uh, if, if I know I could sell her to someone that's using physical fence, she can't jump, uh, and they'll give me, give me enough for, I'll sell her that way. But, but we do eat what we produce, and there really isn't anything better than a fat three-year-old, or up to five-year-old you that didn't raise lambs last spring. What's that? And that you knew jump the fence. Yeah, if, if they jump the fence, it makes them taste even better. <laughs> so the, the fence pushing thing, I don't believe is genetic. I think it's a learned habit. 
Uh, we've had the most problems with animals that came in. They learned a lot of bad habits before they came. Uh, proof of that, possibly, would be the, the first ewe I had a lot of trouble with. Uh, she would squeeze through anything. She wouldn't even flinch if she got zapped. And I really liked the way the animal was made. I liked the way she was uh, raising her lambs. I'm like, I've got to give the offspring a chance since she's going to go down the road. So I, I put her inside of a uh, woven wire pasture and she raised her lambs that summer by herself. And then she went to town and I put the lambs back in the flock and they never got out. It's, it's, I don't really think there's anything genetic about it. It's uh, kind of more of an epigenetic thing. It's, it's a, uh, affected by the way we handle them. You can train them to get out and I've seen flocks where they were slow to cull an animal that would jump or squeeze through and it got to where they couldn't keep them in. The whole flock learned to do it. Uh, so if you get into those situations and you're like, I, I can't cull this whole flock, what I would usually recommend is you pin them up in a physical barrier and put a hot wire offset around and leave them there till they get hungry and then uh, move them to another one and let the same thing happen and they'll begin to make contact with that fence. Oh yeah, that is that does hurt. And the other thing is uh, when you do move them back out, you need to stay out there and watch. And if, if you've got a real fence pusher, it'll be out that day. It's the best time you'll ever spend. Uh, that's that's thousand dollar an hour work to identify a fence pusher in a hundred head flock. Um, uh, if you gotta round them back up, put them in the corral, that's fine. Or if you wanna harvest them right there, that's fine. But don't give her another chance to teach the rest of that flock to get out. They, they, they learn to be content within the boundaries and you need to move them soon enough that they are still content or sort of content when, when they move. I mean, they need to be hungry when they move, but but you don't want to uh, encourage bad behavior either. I have a question for you. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed this presentation. Well, check out the episode notes. And always remember the advice from cows and be outstanding in your field. See you next time.